Take a network break. You can ask ChatGPT to suggest which virtual donor to pick and join us for our weekly analysis of tech news. We're going to talk about AI-infused product announcements from Palo Alto Networks and Microsoft, a new Cisco training platform, space networking, and more. We're sponsored in part today by Palo Alto Networks, and you can join Palo Alto Networks for a virtual event where they're going to unveil what's next in SASE with the latest innovations in Prisma SASE, ZTNA 2.0, and SD-WAN. You can see how these new capabilities help your customers consolidate multiple point products into a single platform to reduce TCO and learn how they'll help automate costly and complex IT ops and stop zero-day threats in real time. You can sign up at start.paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy-signature-moment-2023. And if you didn't get that, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, we're also sponsored today by Itential. Itential simplifies automation across hybrid cloud network infrastructure. Their platform makes it easy for network teams to bring their own automation assets and scale their network automation efforts so you can spend more time working on the things you like instead of repetitive, tedious tasks. Find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. I like that because you can have more time listening to podcasts. <laughs> that's, that's one suggestion, yes. <laughs> Slightly self-serving, but there it is. <laughs> Uh, we have some FU to go over before we get to the news. Last week, we talked about a French defense contractor, uh, and we <laughs> I had an issue with pronunciation, and everybody, we got, I think, multiple uh, follow-ups from listeners uh, correcting our pronunciation, and I believe it is Thalet, if you're French. Yeah, well, we got several responses from Paul, Matthew, and Ronald. Thank you all for sending in. Not just one, <laughs> not just one, but several responses. Um, and basically, the long story is that it's actually named after Thalet, who is the name of a Greek mathematician, among other things, from whom we have inherited various theorems. And if you go over to uh, Wikipedia, you can look up Thalet of Miletus, and you'll be able to think. Uh, and then Ronald okay, wrote Okay, so in the Greeks said, have just entered the chat now, so this is going to just <laughs> complicate things even more. But okay, carry on, please. That's right. Uh, and then he said, uh, Ronald, he linked us to a YouTube video, and Ronald came in with some very helpful thing. He said, and this is what I think I was talking about last week when we were doing this, I realized that there's a French pronunciation and an English pronunciation, and he says in French they say Thalet, sounds like Calais, which is mm -hmm. a, a place in France, and yep. he says, and it sounds like how, and he says in English, it's Thales, which is how the English say Paris. So yes, there are two pronunciations, one which is nominally French and one which is nominally English. So Thales and Thales, not T-H-A-L-E-S, okay. which you might say is Thales. Or Thales. Uh, or, you know. As an American, I would say Thales, just looking at it, and I think that is what started this whole thing. So yep. <laughs> anyway, now we've been corrected. Bring in the grammar <laughs> thank to, you. to network break. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's nice to know it's an international show, though. I, <laughs> it is yeah. a nice feature. Yeah. <laughs> They're a large French defense contractor. If you're following the Ukrainian war, you'll see them mentioned quite often. So, uh, yeah. Uh, one more FU. We had also uh, talked in a recent episode about Google rolling out a desk sharing plan at some offices in its Google Cloud division. A listener who works for Meta wrote in to say that Meta is also moving to desk sharing uh, and says the Meta policy is that you can keep your desk if you're in the office at least four days a week, which doesn't really sound like hybrid work, but I guess, you know, mm. Meta's got to do what Meta's got to do. Mm. I think the interesting thing about this was I he notes in the piece that he says, coincidentally, that was what was to be the required on-site days for non-remote employees before the pandemic. So there's no change there. If you know, mm -hmm, you're on site, mm -hmm. you have to come in four days a week. And I think what he's suggesting is you'll get allocated a permanent desk if you're coming in. But if you're not coming in on a regular basis, you lose your desk. You don't get a nest. Like a lot of people who go to offices, and this is what we're talking about, is people who treat their desk at work as like a little nest. And they yes. up, make it personal and put up pictures and pretend that they own that space. Well, that's changing. Mm -hmm. But what I that, also that was amused by is that we're seeing the end of open plan offices. 
uh, I was reading an article this week and the person was saying that cubicles are now being installed in Meta and Google and in other offices because the noise of people being on Zoom calls all day <laughs> is disrupting everybody around them. There's just so much noise because once upon a time, people used to just sit there and work and then go into meeting rooms to meet. But when you're in the office, most of the people are remote. And so everybody's sitting on Zoom calls all day and the loud the noise is so loud, they're going back to uh, cubicles and putting up you know, dividers and all that sort of thing. And remember, the reason they went away from cubicles is because they're expensive. Right. Although I will say, as someone who used to work in an office and did work near a salesperson who made a lot of sales calls, the cubicle walls do nothing to dampen that sound. So not sure <laughs> well, how this is going to work out. But Salespeople are <laughs> over loud. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, we appreciate the, the FU from all of these quarters. And yeah. if you've got other comments or corrections or anything else, hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. The FU is, of course, for follow-up. So I did ask uh, ChatGPT, I've just been checking it out, what would be the best <laughs> virtual donut? Uh, and we've got some very interesting responses here back. Uh, there would be a 3D printed donut, which can be customized with various designs and topping, an augmented uh -huh. reality donut that can be viewed through a mobile device and appears to be floating in front of you. That's oh. harsh. That That is like a carrot in front of a donkey, isn't it? Like. A donut in order to walk down the street. <laughs> Be very careful with that one, please. <laughs> and I think the other highlight here is the zero-calorie donut, a virtual donut that tastes like the real thing but has zero, zero calories, making it guilt-free. Yeah, you know, if someone can figure that out, by all means, please let us know. <laughs> oh, I'm so in for donuts. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> oh, well. Well, we've got to get to the news. Uh, fully we, I guess we better. Let's move on. All right. Uh, first, Palo Alto Network says it has added AI ops to its secure access service edge or SASE offering. SASE combines SD-WAN with cloud-delivered security services. Uh, with the addition of AI ops, Palo Alto says customers can automate or speed up troubleshooting. You know, For example, if a com uh, user complains, he or she can't access an app, an admin can use a natural language query in a dashboard, and the AI system will go out and run checks to identify the problem that maybe it's routing, maybe it's DNS or a firewall policy, and then surf it up to the administrator instead of the administrator having to figure out which of 100 things it might be. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of the AI ops thing coming forward. We've been talking about it here on, you know, the Packet Pushers Network in heavy networking and heavy strategy and, and the other shows where the use of really it was more deep learning and machine learning and now we're seeing the emergence of true AI uh, to start to pick up on automated or regular tasks or predictable tasks or obvious tasks. So when you see certain flags in the data, you start to say, well, I can use AI to see those patterns and then proactively suggest an action to you. We don't see right. AI ops closing the loop yet. I think it'll be a while before the conference. But I do believe that the arrival of chat GPT and what we've seen with it and what we're going to see in the next month or two, we'll talk more about that further down, um, is really going to change how the adoption or the attitude of people towards using AI ops in their networks or in their infrastructure more generally. And I think in this case, SASE is really ripe for automation because you've got dozens of security functions and features that need to cooperate. You've got, you know, the mm -hmm. idea that you're going to deploy an SD-WAN appliance and maybe a digital experience monitor in a branch. Then you're going to forward traffic to a cloud broker, a CASB that's going to do security scanning. Then you've got to go to your firewalls down in the head, you know, and set them up at various offices that aren't using SD-WAN so that they match the, you know, and then you've got... Um, adding a zero trust network X solution is going, that's going to be, are you really going to manage all those as point solutions? Think about that. Then right. You've still right. got threat detection, threat response. You've got data loss prevention. You've got logging, you, you know, all that stuff. You've got all the monitoring then, the security monitoring and the performance monitoring and so forth. So I think the operational cost of creating something coherent out of all this 
of these point solutions and turning them into a single thing is significant. I think it's going to be obvious, which comes back to the discussion you and I have been having over the last five years, that a lot of security products are just features, not products. And I think that's where we're headed. It seems like that way with Sassy that it's all being bundled into a service. Yeah, um, I will note that you know Juniper has been pushing AI ops uh, not in Sassy but in you know sort of data or your network operations. Particularly, it started with uh, mm. on the the wireless land side with the Mist acquisition, and they've been pushing it out into the wired campus side, uh, integrating more AI ops into day to day network management. And it's now interesting to see Palo Alto taking this into the Sassy space and also ramping up uh, the Sassy competitive market here with this announcement. Yeah, I imagine that Juniper will. That all of these vendors will converge on something, and they're all obviously converging. Everybody who's in the SD-WAN, SASE, SSE space are all converging on an AI ops platform that will orchestrate all of these features that we, you know, the zero trust, the threat detection, threat response, all that logging, you know, security audits, all that stuff. Um, it's just going to depend on where you're coming from. Cisco's coming at it from a, here's a router, we've got some, you know, low quality firewalls or low feature firewalls that do some stuff, but we've got... Umbrella, which does a content inspection, but you've also got Fortinet doing it in hardware as well as software and then the cloud, and then you've got Palo coming at it from there. You know, I think these products will, over time will eventually converge on a unified feature set that we'll see most vendors are all approximating each other because everybody's basically the same. I think we talked about it last week or the week before about HPE essentially acquiring a cloud-delivered security service provider uh, to integrate with the SD-WAN they got from Aruba, which Aruba got from an acquisition. So yeah, it's all starting to come together in interesting ways. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, this convergence will be going on for a long period of time. And it's, you know, if you've been listening to the show for a long time, this wouldn't be new. I think I've been banging on for about probably bored people with it by now. Most of the security products are features and they're going to be unifying. You're going to see them merge up and and we're going to see a lot of companies disappear. Like uh, the one I'm, I don't understand uh, how, what the market for is Zscaler because they rely on other people to bring the traffic into them. But if you've got a range of companies around the edge of the network sending the traffic to Zscaler, then at some point they can just copy what Zscaler's got and make their own, which is what Palo's done, what Fortinet's done, Cisco already had it. You know, all the others can just build one. It's not very difficult to copy a Zscaler. Well, Zscaler is going to come up later in the show, so keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, one more note on this, Palo, before we move on. They've also announced a new premises-based controller for their SD-WAN gateways. The majority of customers are using the cloud-based controller to manage the SD-WAN gateways, but there are a few of them that want an on-prem option, and so now Palo Alto has it as an option in the portfolio. Yep. So good. I'd be interested to hear that how it works out. And if anybody's working on it, and you're doing the AI ops, give us a call. I'd love to chat to you and find out how good and or bad it might be. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, sticking with AI, Microsoft is adding AI capabilities to Microsoft 365 with the launch of Microsoft 365 Copilot. Microsoft says Copilot, quote, combines the power of large language models with your data in the Microsoft graph, your calendar, emails, chats, documents, meetings, and more, end quote. Uh, so using a feature called Business Chat, you can use natural language queries to prompt the system by typing something like, give me an update on a project strategy, and the system will go through meeting notes, emails, and chat threads, and write you an update. <laughs> So, wow. Can you imagine the, the scope for abuse with this? Like people will just be sitting around and then at the end of the week, they'll just get everybody else's work and write, summarize me, give me an update. And, and of course, nobody else is going to do any like updates or post information. <laughs> They're just going to go, what happens when everybody's saying, give me an update at the end of the week and nobody's done anything? It's going to be great. No. GTP is going to be plagiarizing itself. That's right. It'll be really interesting. So I think this is great in the sense that there's so much work around 
writing documents and spreadsheets and and various things like PowerPoint presentations that is just repetitive, tedious, low-value work. And in principle, we're going to see these um, systems, these AI-type systems, doing a lot of the work for you. And if you watch the videos associated with this is, you know, you're sitting there writing an email in Outlook, which would be horrible just to start with because Outlook is horrible, Um, but you can just type into the chat GPT window because Microsoft has an investment in open AI, so they're allowed to use the word chat GPT Uh uh, because GPT is actually uh, copyrighted by open AI. Um, So they're actually able to just say, like, write this letter this way with this tone and this style, and it'll write it for you, and then you're supposed to go back and edit it. I bet a lot of people don't. I bet they'll very quickly scan over it and click send, and mistakes will happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so they are integrating this with specific tools like Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Outlook. So you can prompt the system to help you do things like draft messages and documents, analyze data in a spreadsheet, create or streamline slide docs, get meeting summaries, and more. Uh, one prompt that they're suggesting jumped out at me. It says, summarize the emails I missed while I was out last week. Flag any important items. That's, wow, that's mm. interesting and bold and potentially dangerous. Yeah, I think it's going to be up to people to realize or it's not going to be on us. Now, people who are listening to this are people who are already aware and thinking about what the future looks like. But yeah, you don't want to do private stuff in your work email because that's being tracked. We already know that uh, Microsoft Teams and Cisco's WebEx uh, got AI tools that sit on the back and do language analysis to tell you whether Mm -hmm. people are happy or angry in meetings and what's the average tone and can I derive a measure of employee happiness from the sort of words that are being used in meetings? Um, You're going to see more and more of this where you can miss a a Zoom call or a WebEx call or a Teams call and just ask it to give you a summary and it'll come back and list you all the things that were discussed and summarize everything that was done, which is interesting, but you've still got to read it. So... (laughs) <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Although I guess, you know, I, I wouldn't mind reading a five-minute uh, summary of a meeting instead of sitting in a 45-minute meeting. So Yeah, but I <laughs> wonder what happens there. when everybody sits out of the meetings to get this. <laughs> Nobody went. Nobody went. Because <laughs> they all wanted the summary. That's right. They were just <laughs> There's going to be interesting, interesting <laughs> things happening. It could be a positive. People might eventually give up on the... <laughs> I don't know. I, I, interestingly, I see that Microsoft called it Copilot. Of course, there's a feature in GitHub called Copilot. Which yes, is also, I think that was intentional. Yep. Yeah, I think they're trying to maybe use the sort of the, the co-pilot as a label for their AI assistance or AI mm-hmm. a, a sort of enhanced strategy. So at least for once, Microsoft seems to be having something coherent. The word co-pilot, Microsoft 365 is not very coherent. What the hell is 365? It's like, whatever, why not just call it? <laughs> it means work every day. That's what yeah. it means. Yeah. Who, who wants that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you did touch on this, but it occurs to me that if you do any private stuff uh, in your work email, a banking, healthcare, talking with your family, mm. you know, arranging school stuff with your kids or whatever, you mm. might want to think about moving that to a private account because one, it is being, uh, you know, mm. already scanned and y- your company has access to it. But now it's also getting thrown into the AI mix and who knows how that information might surface uh, in interesting and unexpected ways. So really, really think about if you're on these platforms, what you want in there and what you don't. Uh, and act accordingly. Yep, for sure. So that's going to be a thing. And if you haven't done it already, and you really should have, start doing it now. Don't have your mistress or your... You know, <laughs> using your work. In fact, if you are going to, you know... <laughs> or you could just say to ChatGPT, please make sure that uh, anything for my mistress does not show up in my work accounts, and they'll take care of yes. it for you. <laughs> well, maybe if you're into Magic the Gathering, you've been hiding it through your work account, now's the time to stop. <laughs> There's an, an executive uh, feature possibility there, the, the help me hide my mistress 
chat GPT function. That's, a, mm. Startup idea. Have to think about that, yeah. All right, uh, moving on. The Ethernet adapter market grew 40% in 2022, but not because more NICs were added to servers. Instead, revenues went up for two reasons. First, NIC makers raised prices, and second, customers have started buying more expensive NICs with 100 gig and 200 gig port speeds. That's according to the analyst firm Delora Group. Doesn't sound like, well, we don't know because there's no detail. We're only reading a pricey of a uh, for sale report from Deloro, but I would assume here that this is mostly tilted towards the scale cloud providers, off-prem providers, who are really the only ones who can make use of the 100 gig at, at volume. And they are certainly buying servers at 100 gig and even at 400 gig for AI processing because you can saturate a 100 gig link relatively easily with a good sized server. Right. Uh, they, yes, they did say they're seeing most of the 100 and 200 gig uptick uh, in the hyperscalers, but uh, they're also seeing uh, enterprise starting to move from 10 to 25 gig. So that's starting to happen in the enterprise space. Wow. <laughs> it's only been 10 years. It's only been 10 years, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, and Gotta we've been talking a lot eventually. about... <laughs> it's only because been... 25 gig's cheaper than 10 gig, right? Because the 10 gig is a 4 by 2.5 gig <laughs> lanes, right? And sometimes it's a 1 by 10. Um, whereas 25 gig is one by 25. So it's the same price as 10 gig. Mm -hmm. What you're also seeing is because the at scale cloud providers are no longer buying 10 gig, there's no mass market for them. And 25 gig is mass market. So you're going to see 25 gig become the entry point. Yeah. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, data processing units or DPUs as essentially next gen smart NICs. Uh, Deloro says that uh, they anticipate DPU will grow 30% in 2023 as enterprises figure out use cases and as initiatives like uh, Project Monterey make it easier to run apps on those DPUs. Yeah, there's still no software to make them easy to consume. Uh, the scale providers, the scale clouds are still custom developing software for them to use them. So really still a nascent market, still way too early for DPUs, but I'm very excited about it for the enterprise particularly. Yeah, yeah they're just a small percentage of the overall NIC market, mm -hmm. these DPUs, so lots of room to grow. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks uh, and their Prisma Sassy. 2023 is a year when companies will need to do more with less as businesses grapple with economic uncertainty. It's more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions to reduce operational complexity and costs. You can join Palo Alto Networks for a virtual event this April where they'll unveil what's next in Sassy with the latest innovations in Prisma Sassy, ZTNA 2.0, and SD-WAN. You can see how these new capabilities help you consolidate multiple point products into a single platform to reduce TCO and learn how they'll help automate costly and complex IT operations and stop zero-day threats in real time. See how ZTNA 2.0 Cloud Security Web Gateways and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Sign up for this virtual event at start.paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy-signature-moment-2023. You can find that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, moving on, as you're probably aware, the federal government had to step in after a bank run at Silicon Valley Bank threatened the stability of the U.S. financial system. Uh, so now the U.S. Treasury Department, the FDIC, and the Federal Reserve have stepped in to unwind SVB and a second entity signature bank and fully back all depositors' money in both of these banks. Yeah, I wanted to bring this to people's attention because I think there's an impact to technology at large here, and it's not immediately obvious. It didn't occur to me until I was uh, involved in a discussion on a private Discord group about what the impact would be. So the, the story I can is that basically a bank borrows funds from its customers, that's you, when you deposit money to it, you might call it a deposit, and then it assumes that for most of the time it will have that money in its bank balance on a short-term basis. So there'll be lots of people making deposits and there'll be lots of people making withdrawals, but in general, you'll have a lot of money. So it will then lend that money out on a long-term basis to make interest, which then covers costs and potentially makes the bank a profit. So even if they're paying you interest, they're making more uh -huh. money in the markets at large. And 
there's various rules on banks that those loans should be secured by, you know, solid assets like mortgages or cars, so that in the event of a default, the debt can be recovered. And in this case, Silicon Valley Bank went out and bought a bunch of mortgage bonds at a relatively low interest rate just before the inflation rate came in. So now you've got these bonds at a fixed price, paying only a very small amount of interest. And I think they bought something like 60 billion in a single tranche, like almost all at once. And then the interest rate went up from 3% to, you know, from 1% to 4%. And suddenly these bonds aren't paying back. And they, they can't, if you try and sell them, they're not worth what they were because there's all these good bonds out there that you can buy at a much higher interest rate. Does that make sense? Right, yes. you're going to take so a you, loss if on you them, want yes. to sell them, you've got to basically pay people to, you know, if they've got 20 years left to run on the bond and you're 20 years at a lower interest rate, somebody might only pay 80 cents on the dollar for the bond because they've got to sit at a lower interest rate for the next 20 years. Otherwise, they're going to miss out on right. new money sort of thing. So then, so that was fine. They made a bad mistake and they needed to find some extra liquidity because they failed to do their proper risk compliance on making such a, a big purchase at the wrong timing of the market. You could say it was just a mistake, but mm. uh, And then they also had uh, an overexposure to crypto exchanges as customers. And as the crypto exchanges have continuously failed, they've been closing out multi-billion dollar cash accounts with, uh, to, to draw them into liquidators' accounts and the liquidators or, or just moving the money offshore. So that's infected its liquidity somewhat as you, know, you lose a few billion dollars in cash across several crypto exchanges because the Silicon Valley Bank was very crypto-friendly, very tech-friendly. And the tech-friendly part led to yep. a very big overexposure to venture capital companies as customers. So a lot of large VCs were actually keeping significant cash balances there. And as they opened new funds, the inbound cash would come in. But what we've also seen is that investments have slowed down. So now Silicon Valley Bank's got less money coming in from the venture capitalists because they're raising less new funds, right? Uh, and then the third right. and, you know, or the fourth leg of this is that they have an overexposure to startups and startups burn cash. Then they suck it out, right? <laughs> Blow it up, in effect. Um, they don't usually get uh, revenue, but the money that they've got burns out, so they have to keep withdrawing. So they ended up with a, a very difficult thing where they had lots of money going out at short notice. And this is partly because they were so focused on tech and so focused. And the bank was significant. It rose from $60 billion to $200 billion in just five years, which is almost unheard of for a, what was basically a regional bank. So right. The bank eventually fell largely because there's a, the herd mentality amongst tech. So all the tech people talk to each other, they chat to each other, they're highly connected over various things. And the run started about a week before when rich people like Peter Thiel and other headliners started to pull their money out. They were trying to sort of sneak it out with anybody knowing it became very obvious very quickly. Um, and then those large withdrawals led to less assets and they had to start liquidating to cover the withdrawals. And then at some point, the SVP signaled that said it need we, we need to raise more money. And then the herd mentality kicked in and everybody started to try to pull their money out. And then, of course, the bank was then taken over by the FDIC. I don't think I need to go into any of that, do I? Does it all make sense? Did I go too fast? No, it's very clear. Yep, that's basically what happened. Is, I mean, it's a classic yeah. bank run. The circumstances were very much driven by um, the, the tech industry and the yeah. herd mentality of tech and SVB's over-reliance on the sector. But yeah, that's pretty much it. Pretty much it. And basically, there's no single reason why SVB got into this situation. There's lots of small reasons that added up to a big reason. And probably the, the thing that I see most referred to in a lot of the articles that I've read is their over-reliance on a narrow base. So this is why you see general banking takes in customers from everywhere. They don't tend to focus on a single version, and that's called generalized risk. Mm -hmm. If the housing in industry falls, the construction industry falls, it doesn't usually affect normal banks because they've got money in all different sectors. 
whereas SVB was very much focused on the tech tech markets. Now, what does this mean? Um, the market impact of venture capitalists is they've had a wake up call about how banking works. So I think there's been a lot of sort of low quality diligence or a bit of laziness that just sorts of assumes that the banks are fine and you don't really have to look at them very much. Um, but I think what they're now going to have to do is implement what I would call treasury functions. Do you remember back 30 years ago, companies used to have a treasury team inside of the accounting team? I do not. Ah, well, the treasury team was the ones and they were responsible for managing the money that was in the bank account or and managing it like a treasury. And if you could move the cash from here to here, you could make some money on it or you you might want to go and buy an asset, like a buy land to put a data center on. Well, that sits as an asset on the books mm-hmm. and that has to be you know managed as an asset. So you would have a team that was making sure that the asset was maintained or if you had property and you were renting it out. Anyway, the treasury team was there to manage the treasury, the money. And that was largely abolished um, in the favour of just you know putting money in the bank and not worrying about it because treasury teams became relatively mm-hmm. expensive and a lot of computer software took over the sort of work of, you know, you don't really have to go and say, I can put this money in a two-month deposit and get 4% interest on it or something like that. I think we're going to see more of that come back. That sort of treasure capital, and that means VCs will overhaul those functions and start to institute them, which makes them more look like normal businesses, <laughs> which is not something they want. Um, I think a lot of startups will slow spending. Uh, the failure of these banks has given a lot of startups a wake-up call about banking, but in particular what they're bemoaning is that Silicon Valley Bank was very good to them. It understood them and it gave them loans. It would give them overdrafts. It would, you know, be able to say, oh, we've got funding coming in next week. Here's our investor. Go and talk to them. But we need an overdraft now. And they'd be able to work it out and make it happen. They are very frightened now that they're going to be dealing with the big faceless bank that doesn't care about them. And that's going to change how much money they get or their speed to market. So I think you're going to see startups um, struggle. We're going to see less startups because there's going to be more paperwork. There's going to be much more due diligence around who's got your money and where your money's going. Um Crypto companies, uh-huh. obviously, are going to struggle in the USA for the indefinite future. They already were, but uh, at this point, it looks like the crypto companies have lost three banks that they uh, were using. So Silicon Valley Bank was one, First Republic was another that's gone down, Silvergate's another one that's been now taken into FDIC, and all of those were linked to crypto. Um, that means that a lot of the gateways to get into and out of the US banking system have now gone, and some of the crypto exchanges actually now have no presence in the U.S. whatsoever. It does seem very clear that U.S. federal regulators want to very much isolate uh, crypto from and crypto's ups and downs from infecting the broader financial system. So they yeah. are trying I mean, to wall it off. It's not so much wall it off. They're saying you can come here, but you have to. We now know, or we will now apply standard banking rules to you. So if you're running an exchange, you have to right. comply to normal banking rules. You can't just. You know, <laughs> right? It's it's the we're anti-regulatory yeah. crypto, and but we want access to your financial system, and the U.S. financial system is like, okay, yeah. but we're going to regulate so, you. So yeah, we'll the same see how that plays in out. And the UK uh, this week, the UK ceased operations yeah. for the Binance. All the banks here cut off Binance, and so there's no access to the Binance mm. blockchain now from the UK, and your assets are stranded. By the way, so I think um, what we might have found, if I had to sum it up in a, in a bit of a sarcastic way. Move fast and break things. We might have found a limit to just how much you can break. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we also found out that libertarians in a foxhole are actually socialists. Well, so there's a lot of people accusing, you know, saying to the capitalists, like the rich people, who uh, you want to socialize your losses, but capitalize your profits. They don't want to lose. The profits are all theirs. Yep, classic. But when you take a risk and you know you put money in a bank and that's a risk that everybody faces, we want to social. We want the government to bail us out. 
And uh, I do think that's actually mm-hmm. a viable argument there. So at least the shareholders got wiped, and I think that is right. And a lot of uh, a lot of loans, yes. certain loan bondholders and loan holders will also get wiped. So you know, investing is a risk. It's not an it, yeah. you know we've been in a low interest rate market for a long time, and I think the day to day sort of forgot some basic fundamentals of accounting and money management. But there is a. I think we will see a lot of startups slow down. They're now going to be spending more time on, you know, resources and funding and pricing and all that sort of stuff. It's going definitely going to affect us. So lots of links in the show notes if you want to re open up. We could probably talk even more about things like moral hazard and all that, but we'll we'll leave it. So <laughs> we'll stick with the tech. Uh, moving, it's not that interesting. Yeah, I actually think it's interesting, but I uh, yeah, I don't. We, this is not the place to get into it. So. We shall move on. Uh, Cisco's launched a new certification training platform called Cisco U, as in university. Cisco calls this effort, quote, a digital learning experience, unquote, and says it's designed to help tech workers skill up and get certs. Uh, the platform is meant to tailor itself to the learner to help guide them in the right direction. It includes an assessment phase, modular learning, goal setting, and personalized recommendations. And it's not just for certifications. Cisco says the platform also targets job roles, for example, like a SOC analyst or general categories like network automation and hybrid cloud. And they say they're going to cover some third-party technologies, not just Cisco. This is great. This is something that only big companies could put together. You know, a small startup would really struggle to do this with the resources they've got. So I'm really mm-hmm. excited about this in one way. And then I'll talk about some downsides because I want to be balanced here. But targeted training using AI is a way to focus the learning for each person's individual needs. And if you take a pedagogical standpoint on this, which is what teaching does, it's exactly what every teacher tries to do in the classroom. They try to work with every student and find a way to help every student individually. Um, and that is what is actually happening here. And that the, the it also means that because this is sort of AI generated and seems to be very modular, the dynamic nature of that means that new content can be added or corrected and refreshed as things change. So as the market mm-hmm. changes, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that this sees um, the content in there iterate much faster. For So back in, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the courses used to be refreshed once every three years, and then it became two years, and then they announced changes to the program every year. Well, you know, we really need to be iterating much faster at the current time. Products are changing. We're seeing them converge, like SD-WAN is now, SASE is now, SSE is, you know, whatever. So in this sense, I think it's great, and it seems to be free by and large. Is that correct? Uh, it's uh, you can get free certification training until the official launch in spring, right. uh, but no date on that official launch. Uh, we uh, that there's uh, we're reporting on this on March seventeenth, so uh, it's in currently in early access mode. So if you sign up now, you can get some free training, but I don't know how long yeah. that will be available. I was going to say you it's will be free, paying for it. I was, was going to be snarky and say surely not. This is Cisco. But uh, I'd say not. <laughs> well, your, your instincts were correct. <laughs> uh, so some downsides. Uh, the concept of education or um, mainstream education, what you see in schools and universities, is based on all-around learning. And the issue that I have with corporate-managed education is that topics are selected usually according to business goals, whether consciously or unconsciously. That is, you know, this training program is going to be about this, and these are our business goals. We want these features. These are our best features in our product. Therefore, these are the features that are in the training. Or we want to, you know, brainwash people into believing that we're innovative or whatever it is, right? Um, mm-hmm. Now, if the corporate managed goals align with the business goals, align with what the user needs, then it's excellent. But when they don't align, which includes teaching obsolete technologies or a viewpoint that's unique to that to a company, then your learning won't be balanced. And you could come away with a view thinking, I've learned something and I know what I need to know. 
but then suddenly realize that that's just one viewpoint. There's not, there's other viewpoints out there. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. So you can argue that it's up to the student to decide, you know, the sort of right wing, you know, the use the customer is always right. They get to decide what they use or not. But most often the student is not in a position to understand what's best. That's why they're learning. (laughs) Right. So, if you're trying to learn something, you're trying to rely on the teacher or the pedagogy of the of the content that you're being taught and the way you're being taught it, so that you're then equipped to know what you need to learn and how to adapt your learning. So, on one hand, I'm very happy that AI is being used for this and it's going to be really useful, but it could just as equally go so very wrong. And we're going to have that discussion about AI ad nauseum for the next ten years, Drew. And I think hopefully we never have to say it again, but I bet we do. Until AI replaces us entirely on this show, then yeah, we're going to be talking about it for a long time. <laughs> People are trying. People are trying. <laughs> uh, I, as as always, I think Cisco understands the value that it gets uh, long term to for its business by having uh, people trained up on through Cisco and on Cisco equipment. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they would continue to invest in education and learning. I do like a modular approach. I do like being able to tailor it more toward individual learners. I don't know how granular it's going to get, but I think that's an interesting tack. Uh, and I also assume Cisco sees that there's lots of competitive options out there in the in the private sector for uh, technology learning and training. So they're trying to continually up their game as well to, to keep ahead of those. So interesting times. Yep. I think it's good until proven otherwise. Sure. Yes. Good. In, concept, is concept, good. Is good. concept is good. Concept is good. Let's see how the execution yep. works. Let, yep. Let's see execution. That's that's always the, the key. All right. Moving on. The White House is undertaking a plan to regulate the security of public cloud providers, including AWS, Microsoft, and Google. This is according to a story in Politico. Uh, specifics haven't been announced, but the general goal is to close regulatory gaps and perhaps tailor regulations to specific sectors, such as banking. Uh, there are existing regulations like FedRAMP that require a baseline of security controls for public cloud providers, but that's just for government customers, mm. there's fewer regulations for the private sector that specifically focus on cloud security. Yeah. So this is something that we've talked about a lot. We've talked about where does the government get involved? And over the last three or four years, we've sort of pointed out that politics and politicians, when they, when they get involved in producing something, it's this big lumbering sort of, and it's all encompassing. It's not, and they tend to only work where there's a vacuum when companies fail to deliver something. And I believe that we can, it's fair to say that companies have done a poor job of implementing IT security. IT security vendors have done a poor job of producing products that actually work in such a way as to be usable and to reduce risk. And I'm also reasonably convinced that um, that it's just so common that breaches and security failures every day that you don't even see it hit the press anymore. And yet I've got special, I'm subscribed to a bunch of newsletters and they're literally sending out five to 10 breach notices a week, hospitals, schools. Uh, There's a case of a hospital in America that was breached. They stole a lot of x-ray images and they're now releasing images of um, patients who had breast removal and they're posting the post-op photographs of that. That's horrifying. That is horrifying, right? Terrible. And that's not even making front page news, right? (laughs) And like consider back, say, three or four years ago when they attacked a hospital, the outcry was so bad that these people were forced to back off and give the key out and, you know, to pull back. But now mm-hmm. it barely even gets noticed. So I'm having, I, I mean, governments have to come in and fill the space. I'm very concerned that it's going to go wrong, right? But the problem is systemic and threatens the public at large. And it's not just a few companies with a few problems. It's pretty, it's public services. It's about societal stability and breakdown. So I think it's a, it, it's well overdue. Here in the UK, they're making efforts. The EU's making efforts. And the U.S. government is now signaling that it's going to be involved everywhere. And that's where this cloud security comes from. They've done others. Remember NSA security, I think it was last week or the week before, 
They announced a standard mm-hmm. sort of suggested document there. So that's where I stand on it. Cheer them on. I'm a little, uh, obviously the government has to step in when the situation demands it. And I think it does demand it. I just also worry that if they come in too heavy handed and too prescriptive, I'd like more of a lighter touch, more uh, directional as opposed to you must implement X, Y, Z. I think, you know, PCI, for example, I think is too prescriptive uh, and burdensome and doesn't necessarily meet its objectives. We can have an argument about that. So I don't want the same thing to happen in the cloud because it's already complicated enough. Uh, But there are significant issues and it seems like we haven't been able to get a handle on this so sometimes the government does have to step in uh yeah but there's no specifics yet so we have to sort of wait and see what actually mm. gets handed down and what's required it's going to be ugly it's going to be judgment. like when when it's going to be nasty you know, you're trying to solve all the pro- a very big problem and you need a very big stick very big problem and at the end of the day yeah. you know legislation from the government that, or guidelines from the government tend to be a fairly blunt weapon but at this point i think right. we don't have a whole lot of choices so Right, another quick break to tell you about our other sponsor, iTential. Today's networks span physical, virtual, and multi-cloud infrastructure. iTential's automation platform makes complicated networks more manageable. Tools like Ansible, Terraform, and Python can help you handle routine tasks, but they're limited. The automation you can build only focus on specific network tasks rather than full change management process. With iTential, you can use the assets you've already built and integrate them into a larger, more comprehensive automation workflow. iTential provides low-code capabilities. You can easily build and run workflows that automate the entire network change process, from ticket creation to ticket close. With iTential, you can incorporate existing CLI and custom scripts into automation workflows or build your own automations. Maximize automation from ticket creation to closure by integrating automations with your entire ecosystem. Create guardrails to prevent errors and robust pre-check and post-check processes. Make your automation accessible for self-service access that anyone can execute inside or outside the platform. So know your network, automate your network. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's itential.com slash packet pushers. Right, a couple stories before we wrap. Uh, first, we talked earlier about SASE, but there's also a category for standalone cloud-delivered security services. It goes by SSE or Secure Services Edge. Deloro Group says that market category grew 38% in 2022. So this goes back to what I said before about the, when you have devices at the edge of the network and you start doing security at the edge, and inevitably anything to do with the internet centralizes and then decentralizes because as compute power and memory capacity increases, doing things in a central location like a public cloud or an off-prem cloud or in a mainframe eventually loses its value and you need the flexibility and the scalability of doing things at the edge. And this is runs into that story. So if you want to take that view, SSE, Secure Services Edge, is where the edge device runs all of the tools that you want. And some things are in the cloud, certainly, you know, orchestration, AI ops will be in the cloud. But the the real value here is that every time you add a site, you put a box in and then your capacity is, is expanded. And I think this is the flag that they're throwing up here. 38% growth in SSE market makes sense to me. I'm surprised we haven't seen more. Yeah. Uh, one thing that jumped out at me, Delora says just three vendors own 58% of market share. And those vendors are not in order of the market share, Cisco, Symantec, and Zscaler. And there's that Zscaler callback we hinted at earlier. Yeah. Uh, I'm... Surprised to see Symantec in the top three. Zscaler, I'm not. They were one of the pioneers of cloud-delivered security services. Mm. So it makes sense that they'd be there. Yeah, Zscaler has been very popular with SD-WAN companies. Remember, there's like 50 or 60 or 80 or I don't know how many lots, uh, SD-WAN companies. And a lot of them were just saying, well, uh, so for example, Aruba Silverpeak, when they acquired it, Silverpeak said, yeah, we can do this. We'll just send it to Zscaler and away you go. By the way, I keep switching between Zscaler and Zscaler. It's... (laughs) It's just the way I am because I would say language is yeah, tricky. I language would normally say Z scaler and then you say Z. So I echo you back. Um, 
I say Z, you say yeah, Z. Is that right? You, <laughs> that's right. Who knew? Z is British. <laughs> so with Z scale, it was really this case of um, other people were sending the traffic to it. But as we can see here with Symantec and Cisco, once you own the edge, you can actually cut people who are only CASBs out of the pile. So I would expect to see a lot of those companies acquired by companies who own the edge and can control who the upstream CASB is. I'm not surprised that Zscaler is the leader or in the top three today, uh, but Symantec's a bit of a surprise because I hadn't heard them ever mentioned in the breadth of SSE. And I would like no. to see what this Delora report, how the hell they decided yes. Symantec is an SSE product. I would like to see behind the curtain on mm, this one. Anyway, <laughs> I think I challenged the analyst uh, on that one. I think he might have been standing too close to the bottle. <laughs> and just a heads up for listeners, I think the next big marketing fight among vendors is going to be between an integrated SD-WAN and SSE where the one vendor provides you everything, your SD-WAN, your cloud-delivered security service, all of it, versus mix and match approach where you get your SD-WAN from one vendor, your cloud-delivered security service from another, and then you integrate the two. That's that's going to be the big fight. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I think it'll all converge. SD-WAN is a convergence into SASE, which is a convergence into SSE. All right, let's wrap up with some space networking. Uh, Amazon has unveiled three terminals that customers can use to access satellite internet from Amazon's forthcoming Project Kuiper service. Amazon says it plans to start offering satellite broadband in late 2024. The three terminal options available are one for home use, it mounts on a roof, it's rated for 400 megabits per second. There's a portable terminal for travel, promises 100 megabits per second of service, and then a larger terminal with greater capacity for businesses and commercial use. Hey, the smelly fat guy just sat down on the bus to take out the seat to try and lock everybody else out, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> this won't be available until late 2024. Uh, okay. So not exactly imminent. You do realize it is first quarter, first calendar quarter, 2023. So two years away, really. Um, mm -hmm. And they're announcing their antennas. That's like, okay. Uh, so I would say that by the time this actually gets here, that things will change. I think they're probably um, either trying to salt the ground for competitors or, you know, like OneWeb or whatever. Obviously, SpaceX is not going to. Yeah, too late on SpaceX. Too late on SpaceX, <laughs> but they're trying to salt the, the marketing ground for other competitors who may beat them to the market. So that's one way to work it. Uh, but I actually think much more likely that Amazon's going to struggle here. Their rockets aren't working yet. And, you know, if you've got to start sending your satellites up on a competitor's product like SpaceX, the numbers really don't work quite so well for you. And the fact that it's still two years away, that means that SpaceX has got two years to get, you know, get its footprint out there. And I don't think this announcing early does them any favors. What do you think? I think late 2024 probably means 2025, but I also think satellite broadband adoption is so minimal anyway at this point that mm. there's still going to be room for growth. Um, but yeah, they are definitely, they need to say, yes, we're in this fight. We've got it. We're rolling out equipment mm. just to you know sort of let people know, yes, we're here too. Uh, I mean... I am excited to see the competitive one-upmanship that's going to emerge between two egomaniacs battling for the control of space. It's going to yeah. be fun. Well, don't forget OneWeb as well. They've, had, <laughs> they've been putting satellites up into space. Yes. There will be but, a third. But they we'll don't have an egomaniac driving them, so we got to – that's my entertainment value. <laughs> Not so much value. fun to talk about, really. <laughs> um, there are a couple of things that I noted. Uh, the competitive situation is interesting. Amazon claims that it's using a custom ASIC for the baseband processing mm -hmm. and the microwave management – is that better and or cheaper than what Starlink's doing? I'm not 100% sure. Right. Uh, obviously, Kuiper will have access to Amazon for product sales and for distribution. So one of the challenges that SpaceX is having is that shipping out antennas and you know getting them for customers and all that sort of stuff is quite difficult, whereas Amazon will actually have a whole infrastructure to be able to do that reasonably cheaper than SpaceX. 
Uh, obviously, it's got access to AWS for the whole backend situation, you know, for right. yep. the, the, the platforms. And AWS does have some satellite dishes installed in various of its data centers for geosynchronous satellites. Is it going to use those for these as well? I imagine it will, but that's also a competitive advantage compared to SpaceX. And then, of course, the big one is that, of course, SpaceX is always starved for capital. It's always going out to raise money. It's still not making a profit. Uh, Starlink is the best way for them to reach profitability, but AWS and Amazon has the ability to do a lot more, <laughs> to spend a lot of money. If it really believes that it's in for a particular thing and it really wants to do this, then Jeff Bezos can basically call it and do whatever the hell he likes. So I do think SpaceX has a fight, but they're so far behind. The big one here is that Blue Origin, which is meant to be the rockets that would be taking their satellites to space, still haven't got a rocket launch. Uh, they've only managed to launch a manned capsule up to subspace, just beyond the 90 kilometer, the 60 kilometer range, which is actually mm-hmm. not true space. It's just a certain point in the uh, in the height that you sort of lo- normally get called space. Um, but they haven't sort of managed anything since. Like we haven't seen any more of those launches. They were sort of like, "Hey, we're going to go," and then we realised their rocket's not very good. And we haven't seen anything since. So hmm, we'll see. Yeah, I think it's good that there is more competition coming in this space because it also means more competition for terrestrial services, which I think is much needed. So always happy to see that. Uh, There's also possible more vertical integrations that Amazon could leverage to really make this work. I'm thinking about their whole... You know, shipping fleet and so on, needing connectivity and tracking packages and all that. There's ways they could tie that in as well. So I think lots of opportunities here, but they are very way behind. By 2025, you know, Elon Musk could be talking about beaming satellite internet directly to a chip in your head. So Amazon has its work cut out for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, SpaceX has got plenty of room to make mistakes here, and there is a gap opening up. There needs to be a second, I think, maybe even a third. Um, so maybe that's what see a third, China yeah. will have their own, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably just one. Uh, so there's lots of emerging space, but I think for SD-WAN purposes, if you're an organization that needs bandwidth in lots of places, I think this is interesting. Um, although I suspect that 5G and externally mounted antennas for fixed wireless access, which is what they're calling it, because it's not wireless, it's 5G, but they call it FWA, or fixed wireless access, for some unimaginable reason. Um, <laughs> it's more likely to be popular with most people because you're, wherever you're setting up an office is most likely going to be mobile phone access, and it's going to be a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as always, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it yourself. That does uh, wrap up the show for today. Greg, where can folks get more from you? Uh, I'm going to try a new exercise on my blog. I've decided that if AI can write things for you, um, I might start blogging in bullet points, and I'm trying to work that out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> just, blo- just bullet points. You'll have an article with an opening sentence and then just bullet points. So, uh, what people don't know is that uh, the network break actually consists of a document and it Drew writes in complete paragraphs and Greg writes in bullet points. And I think I might just start using that. Uh, maybe Drew is an AI and I'm just using bullet points to show that I'm an, I'm not. Has is that, how do you feel? Time for, time for a Turing test. If, if I haven't passed it by now, then. There you go. As I'm thinking I might just go back to blogging with bullet points and just saying, this is bullet, 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 done. PowerPoint blogging sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I love it. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm Drew Conrad-Murray. I'm on Twitter, Drew underscore CM and blogging at Packet Pushers. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us for this episode of Network Break. If you like the show, give us a like on Facebook, leave a recommendation or Apple Podcasts, or just share it with a friend. As always, thanks for listening.